Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's a Monday um, afternoon, midday, and I want to see if I can do the Parsha today. Um, it can be more efficient because of college, the absence of. And uh, today's podcast on the Parsha is going to be sponsored by Corinne Klatsko out in Minneapolis. This is in memory, tribute to the yard set of her mom, which is coming up over here at Tzivah Abbas which is, I guess, Yudal Shvat, that should be Thursday, Wednesday night, Thursday, so it's uh, this week. Uh, and she passed away in 1970 when uh, Corinne told me that she was a, y- a young girl, uh, which is tough. I said, tell me something about your mother. But it's not so easy when someone loses a mother at a young age, as, as we understand. And uh, but she said, you know, she showed friendliness, respect to others, let them know she was interested in them, a good listener, compassionate. She believed every person should take care of what God gave them, especially to take care of themselves. And if you're chosen, you have to act it and be dignified. See, that's the idea of the Amanivchar in the best sense. And she believed God helps those who help themselves. I never heard it from her, she said, but I was told that's what from my siblings. Uh, it's just interesting yesterday. I was doing it in honor of the anniversary of my cousins, and um, this is Minneapolis, the Koreans from Minneapolis, so uh, I had relatives there long ago. Um, could be that my uncle taught her mother, or Corinne, I forget already, um, he passed away in 75, in the old Hebrew school system of yesteryear when they had the Beit Midrash, um, and my mother lived for a while in Minneapolis until... Um, Judy brought her to Baltimore. So it's, a, it's an interesting connection back and forth. I haven't been in Minneapolis, oh, in many years. I used to go every year when my uncle was alive, when I was much younger. But I haven't been there in many, many moons. Uh, anyway, pay tribute to the memory of the Nifter, as they said in the Shem Shavon <coughs> Now, uh, in this week's Parsha, I just started going through the Shnai Mikra. That's what I do. I don't have anything planned. But as I go through, if I notice something, <coughs> I, uh, you know... May zero in on it. And I want to share with you something interesting to me, although I was actually thinking before this morning of talking about something different. So if my memory is good, if I, once I finish this for it, if I remember, I'll go back to the other thing. But this I notice now. There is a very, uh, as I was reading in Shani, when the people very dramatically complained to Moshe, what they weren't in their graves in Egypt, they had to take it, schlep us out over here. <clears throat> and I was thinking that now, when I was doing the Shnaimik of Targum, asked a classic, that's what you call a rhetorical question, agreed? They weren't asking a question, are there not enough graves in Egypt? I mean, have you done a survey? And uh, is that the reason we're in the desert? No, they're complaining, they're butching. It says rhetorical question, are there not enough graves in Egypt? You have to schlep us out in the desert, you dummy, you know, like that. So you see, it's a biblical example of rhetoric. <clears throat> rhetoric is a is an art, or it used to be, and uh, it's a legitimate art because the Bible uses it. <clears throat> Get it? Is it? It's it's the Bible uses it, and so um, uh, that made me think. 
I apologize for that. <laughs> and I, it, it me. I remember from distant past, or at least I thought I did, that I have some books of rhetoric at home, and uh, including biblical and similar rhetoric. <clears throat> and I seem to remember in one of my rhetoric books, which again is an art which is no longer taught, that they use this pusik as an example of that. If the Torah itself, Torah Kadosh uses <coughs> rhetoric in certain places, Shmamino is a proper way to speak. Okay, so he's not simply, you know, very direct forward all the time, Yekish style, you know, this, 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 black, white, yes, you know. You can employ forms of different speech. <coughs> After all, the Torah uses it. Now, uh, the, my, the, the rhetoric, the first rhetoric book of choice that comes up is the one from the Ramchal who wrote a book on rhetoric, among other books. Um, obviously, he's not so famous. He's famous for the Masilsi Sharma and all that stuff. But he has a book on Sefer Melitza. Now, he's not the only one. But there's a whole <clears throat> tradition in Jewish history, Jewish literary history, of books of rhetoric. You know? Now, not nowadays, but in earlier times, which is just an interesting subject by itself. Believe it or not, there are people written books and PhD dissertations on the history of rhetoric and all that kind of stuff. Back in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, it was particularly popular, <clears throat> and so forth. So I whipped out my Ramchal book, The Sefer Melitza, and I actually <clears throat> have the uh, Fetzo volume that the uh, Feldheim put out, which is called Der HaKodesh, The Way of Torah, and the Ramchal's, well, basically, it's, it's, it's uh, four books in one. I think. Uh, it's the, uh, or is it three books in one? Uh, it's the Derek Tmunos, the, uh, the Sefer Egoin, and the Sefer Hamlitza, with an English translation, which is a first-class translation. And the Ramchal technical books, you actually need a first-class translation, because these terms are no longer in use. If I use the word rhetoric with you, let alone the rhetorical terms from Tertullian and Cicero and all this other junk, nobody's going to understand what he's talking about. The Ramchal had a classical education, but you and I usually don't. I've had a little bit of one, but not, you know, like he had. <clears throat> so, you know, reading the Greek and, and Roman classics, that's not what they did in TA, <clears throat> for the most part. Now, um, here's the thing. So I remember, or at least I thought I did, that if you look at the Ramchal's rhetoric book, you'll find this reference. So I opened up this fat so book, it's very nice. I do recommend it if you're at all interested. Although he's very, you know, the, the style of the Ramchal is very convoluted. You know, it's very, uh, highly Baroque, you know, with categories and subcategories and subcategories of subcategories. Some of you have seen his book on the Gemara, you know, with all those circles and charts and so forth and so on. But it does have a biblical index in the back. So I look at Shmos. We're looking at Perak Yudalit. I'm looking at Shmos. But to my disappointment, it has uh, Shmos chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, which is not the puzzle guy said, and so forth, but rather uh, the, the following sukkum. So the puzzle I was uh, looking at was um, verse 11. Instead, the Ramchal references, uh, or, or, or semi-references, the two psukim later. So I'll, I'll just start again. 
Not enough graves in Egypt. What do you do? Schlepping is here. <coughs> we told you before. Leave us alone. We want to serve Egypt. You know, better to live as a slave in Egypt than die in a desert. But then, what the Ramchal and the uh, Feldheim translators uh, do reference is the following Pesukim. Yud Gimel Yudal. Bayam Ramosh Alam Altiro. Moshe responds, as we all know, Altiro, don't be afraid. Hisi Atzvu, Ruus Yeshua Sashem, Ashi Yasel Ochem Hayom, Kasher Isa Mitzrayim Hayom, Losifano Ad Olam, Shemi Lochem Lochem Atem Tachrishun. So again, listen closely. Bayam Ramosh Alam. Moshe gives a tiny little speech, and he's speaking to the Ganta Am. And he says, Altiro, don't be afraid. Hisyatsu, stand up, or Uas Yus Shuasem, see the salvation of the Lord, Ashayasal Kamayon that'll do today, Ki Ashar Isa Mr. Mayom. Uh the way you see Egypt today, Los is even you'll never see him again. Ashemi Lokim Lahem, God will serve with you, Atem Tahrush, you should just shut up. Okay? Now, um that's like a little speech. The question is why the little speech? Why did Moshe just say, you know, listen, we're gonna cross over and we're gonna split the sea or something like that? Now this is a, the observation I just made is a pushed shot observation. Why the little speech? Why does the Moshe simply say, you know, Hashem Yilochim Lachem Atem Tachrishon or something like that? Okay? Why do you have to have the whole little poetry beforehand? I thought it's a Rashi, but it's a Michalta. I mean, I know from the Michalta, but I thought Rashi quotes it also. <coughs> but there's a very famous Michalta over here. Uh, I'm surprised Rashi didn't quote it, frankly. And I believe I've mentioned it in earlier years. And that's about the four groups. <clears throat> the four groups. The Mechilta says like this, Arba Kitanasu Yisrael Aliyam, the Jews, those the 600,000 men and who knows how many other people, this huge mob immediately formed in the four parties, four groups, A, B, C, and D, just naturally. Acha Sumer Aliyam, one group said, let's just throw ourselves in the sea and drown. Those they were freaked. Acha Sumer Mitzrayim, one group said, let's return back to Egypt and surrender. One said, let's fight the Egyptians and, and take them down, you know, like Shimshon, Thomas Nafshin pushed him. Right? And one said, let's scream. Okay? And Michilta says that Moshe wasn't simply giving a little poetry. Moshe was actually giving a rhetorical masterpiece. He was like in, in, in a Democratic Convention, Republican Convention, he was addressing all the different interest groups. Zosh Amr Lipolayom, connect Nellers Lagabi, those who said, let's drown in the sea. Amr Hashem. So that's the part of the speech that Moshe said, You don't have to drown. God will save you. Zosh Amr Noshim Mitzrayim, the group that said, let's go back to Mitzrayim. So in other words, in the first part of the speech of Moshe, he's addressing, you know, uh, the Southerners, and the next speech he's addressing the Northerners, or whatever group it was. So there was a, a svara to it. It was a chachma to it. It was a, a rhetorical exercise in the best sense of the word. What about the group that said, let's fight them? No, you don't have to fight. Hashem, you And Zush, Amr, Nitzvah, Kenegdon. 
And those zealots just scream. You know how people are when they're scared. They just scream. It doesn't do any good. Atem Tachrishin. Just shut up, Moshe says. Atem Tachrishin. Just shut up. So in other words, it wasn't simply he's repeating himself and repeating himself, but there was a specific meaning in each part of the little speech that Moshe gave. What I just told you is a plain, straightforward, pashup shot interpretation of Mechilto, and it reflects the fact, as I always say, that the Medrash isn't some Medrash Stam in the Velterine, but is usually responding to a very Omekapshat type word. People don't usually get that, but the Medrash is usually responding to an Omekapshat type observation. In the case I just said, the question is why does Moshe go through this whole, you know, linguistic rigmarole? LMI, it's not. <laughs> it, it, it was very Eiskehalten and had a lot of Svara to it, and he was addressing different interest groups. <laughs> so Lahavdal. If a president of the United States who's good at it gives a State of Union speech, part of the speech will deal with civil rights, part of the speech will deal with the economy, part of the speech will deal with foreign policy, part of the national event, you know, like that. And he's addressing different constituencies. That's exactly what Moshe was doing. That's the Mechilta. Again, Rasha and Kobe, that's the Mechilta. It's very famous. Um, so I pulled out this Ramkal book and I followed the... Um, Index business of the Psukim. Just for my own interest, since I was thinking of doing this right. Mom, every time I'm talking about it happened in the last 10 minutes. <clears throat> and I go to page 597. So I'm doing this so if you want to, you can see it yourself. And I repeat, this is uh, this is one of the best stuff of the Feldheim, in my opinion. They really did a nice job on this. Because it is not easy to translate some of this difficult um, Ramchal style. It's not like the Masilsi Charm. Which is more of a piece of cake, but rather not totally. But this is much more difficult because it's technical. It's the technical stuff of public speaking and rhetoric. <clears throat> and I just want to share with you, uh, and you can look it up yourself if you feel like it. That there are different chapters in the in the book about rhetoric, and one of them, okay, is called Peregdal. It's called Teva Harotzon Arba Yisodi Hamlitza. Now, you will not understand it, I guarantee you, if you just read in the Hebrew. You've got to have the Feldheim translation, in my opinion. And it's, it did quite a good job. And it goes over a couple of pages. And here, the Ramchal, the author, is addressing the nature of rhetoric, which is the human personality. How can I use speech to be pile on you? But that has to do with the Teva HaRatzon and the Arba Yisodi Hamlitza. Okay? So one of them, I'll read it in English rather than Hebrew, because it'll be clearer uh, what it has to do, and I'm reading the, the paragraph headings. The nature of the will is the desire that which is pleasing and good, and strive to its attainment. But there is an emotional underworld, right? And the hatred for work and the love of relaxation. You simply, when you speak to an island, you have to realize that's how it goes. And, uh, and he gives examples, right? You know, if a person gets angry, bursting with rage, in his wrath, he becomes bent on revenge against the person who angered him. If you try to appease a person and persuade him to forgive the other person, overlook his wrongdoing, it won't work. As long as his rage is controlling his will, he won't even hear your reasons, and his mind will not be able, his mind will refuse to understand anything as it really is. So we all know, you know, Anybody's married knows that, okay? He won't be able to, to accept or acknowledge the rationale of true arguments, 
and consider the consequences of his actions, and so on and so forth. Okay, so he's speaking about the human personality over here. Now, I'm skipping over to the end of page 597. He says, There are four possible factors. You hear what I'm saying? There are four possible factors that, this is Ramchal, that prevent the will from following the directives of the intellect. Four factors that prevent the will from following what the intellect tells you, what your mind tells you. The listener lacks a precise picture and a clear image, and the speaker does not make a, a lasting impression and a strong assertion. See, I guess you have to have a precise picture, a clear image, a lasting impression, and a strong assertion. How does he say it? In, just to give you an idea of his unusual Hebrew, because the Ramchal always uses an unusual Hebrew, Harishon Shalotis Apekna Hamilos so in other words, the picture is not, is, is, as he said over here, you didn't do a good job. Uh, you know, the, the words do not pro- pro- provide a full precise picture of the subject matter, and they can fall forth due to the nature of the words, etc. <coughs> okay, so it's, a, it's interesting. So I'm looking at the footnote here on 597, which is wonderful, because the footnote... And I repeat, this is a book on rhetoric, on Melitza. See, so speaking in general principle terms, not on Parsha B'Shalach. But the example he uses is the Parsha B'Shalach. Listen to this. Again, this is the footnote on page 597. In the Mechilta, there is a clear definition of these four factors affecting the will and the intellect. And the intellect. So one of the four factors, uh, the words don't pr- pr- provide a full precise picture. You have to have a clear image in the mind. There has to be a long, a lasting impression, and there has to be a strong assertion. Without these, you won't be able to be pile on the audience. Now, I'm going to read what it says in the Michalta, which is what I told you before. Quote, at the splitting of the sea, there were four groups. You listening? Thinkers, dreamers, fighters, screamers. Again, thinkers, dreamers, fighters, screamers. The first group lost all hope of salvation, and he said, what can we do? We'll throw ourselves into the sea and drown. That's what you call the thinkers. Uh, meaning, from a logical perspective, they didn't know the sea's going to split. So they're stuck against the water. Here comes Pharaoh. We're toast. The second turned to dreams of former days and said, oh, if we were only back in Mitzrayim. The third group was no more realistic than the second. And he said, let's go and make war against the enemy. Which they wouldn't have had a chance to get 600 Chariots plus who knows what trained warriors. That's the Sforno. The last group became hysterical, right? Let's scream at them. Immediately, Moshe Rabbeinu answered them all. Meaning, Moshe Rabbeinu, as a good rhetorician, uh, a master of speech, even though he tiny, he's a Kvad Peh, but it seems that he wasn't, <laughs> you know? Well, or let's put it this way. You don't know what Kvad Peh means. If he said he had a stumbling, a stutterer, so that's a different story. That could be. But if you think it means he's not good at speaking, by this time he turned into a master speaker because he realized the necessity of the full picture, the clear image, the lasting impression, the strong assertion. And so immediately Moshe answered them all, right? Do not be afraid. Stand and you will see the salvation that Hashem is going to be doing to you. For as you see Mitzrayim today, you'll never see him again. Hashem will fight for you and be quiet. Meaning those two psukim contain all the elements 
for the proper speech to be piled on the audience of different types. To the thinkers, Moshe said, with a clear image, elaborating on what to expect. Stand and see the salvation of Hashem, what He's going to do for you today. His Yatzvu, Ru Yes Yeshua Hashem. That, in other words, he gave him a precise picture. You are going to be saved by a miracle, which of course happened. His Yatzvu, Ru Yeshua Hashem. So those of you who are thinking there's no way around, and we're stuck against the, the, the sea, and the Egyptians are coming, Moshe says, listen to me. I've got a track record already. I'm telling you, Enochanami, Derech HaTeva, there's no way out. We're going to do something, we're about to see something, and you know, let's put it this way. At this point, after 10 plagues, I don't think the people could say to Moshe, oh, you're crazy. There's no Shalokadech HaTeva. The guy was made out of Shalokadech HaTeva. You know, from the time he showed up in Egypt and did 10 makas, he's Shalokadech HaTeva. So Moshe is telling everybody, So for the first group, the thinkers, he gave a precise picture. Okay? For the dreamers, Moshe used repetition to make a strong and lasting impression on them. The way you saw Mitzrayim today, you'll never see them again. Okay? So that's for making a lasting impression. You'll never see them again. Addressing the fighters, he used a precise picture to set them straight. Hashem will fight for you. Right? Which evokes an image. Which, by the way, <coughs> in Oz Yosher, Hashem Yishmacham, Hashem Shod, they saw God, Masher Hashem Chal Yam, Leroy Cheskel and Buzi, you know, they saw God as a fighter. I don't know exactly what it means, obviously. Neither do you, but, you know, they had an image. And to the hysterical screamers, Moshe said, just shut up, Atem Tachrishun. Moshe Rabbeinu thus aroused the entire nation to go forward into the sea, and this shows us his great wisdom, since he was able to speak to the heart of all those thousands and tens of thousands, and they all listened to him. The Ramchal's generalization about these four factors is not a mere observation. It's an all-encompassing system for understanding the human spirit, as we can see from the four groups at the Red Sea. So in other words, it turns, as I said before, into kind of a, you know, so, so to speak, rhetorical masterpiece, because he addressed all the interest groups in a way that, that worked to be piled on them. So for the dreamers, he couldn't speak in a language that worked for the thinkers, and for the, the scaredy cats, he couldn't talk in a language that would be for those who were courageous. But instead, he spoke, you know, and, and he composed a small speech that pithily included everything. I'm only saying this to emphasize today the rhetorical side of the biblical narrative, the rhetoric side. The Bible, among other things, is a rhetorical work. Not all the time, sometimes it's a straightforward narrative. But very often, especially when you get to fights over there, we find in the Chumash um, exaggeration, sarcasm, uh, rhetorical questions, all the shtick of classical rhetoric you'll find in the Chumash and Kabbalah Chumrah and the rest of the Vim, which is just an interesting angle for which to do it. Now, you say it's from and not from. There was shown in Machron, who wrote books on this stuff, used, like the Ramchal, using the Pesukim of the Tanakh as examples of what they regarded as the proper way of the rhetoric. In other words, the argument was there's, there's an entirely independent Hebrew from rhetorical tradition. We do not need to learn the rules of rhetoric from the Greeks and the Romans. Long before Demosthenes came along, long before Cicero and Tertullian came along, you have Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, people like that, okay? In which you see, they don't simply give a straightforward, boring, you know, zach, but they'll make a strong speech 
on this occasion or that occasion, you know, one way or the other, like in the Korach story and all the rest of it, uh, using all the tricks and the shticks that are out there, which means that it's part of being a Talmud Chacham to be able to be able to master to some degree or another the, the tricks and shticks of, of the rhetoric. Now, I don't think people study this as a, uh, you know, formal discipline. I don't think the Kliyakar read rhetoric books. I mean, you never know. It's possible. I'm serious. It's possible. And you notice the I mean, he knew everything, so maybe he read the books. But I think some people are just naturals. Get it? It's just natural. And so you are able to find the, the, the turn of phrase and the, as I say, the sarcasm in the right place, in the right place, and the opposite of sarcasm in the right place, and the use of a mushal in the right place, and the refraining from using a mushal, but instead, instead speaking very directly in a different place. But it's like a doctor or a shrink. You, you know, you know, when you go to them, they're supposed to have several different, uh, what's the right word, you know, strategies. I can address your illness this way, but if that doesn't work, there's another methodology, and there's a third methodology. That's a sign of a professional. person is not a professional. I just have one methodology. I just have one, one trick. No, it's whatever occurred to me uh, when I was thinking, as I'm speaking, that's what I'm using. If it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. Masha'in King, a well-practiced speaker, you know, like Moshe, because uh, understand well, Moshe had had a whole life in Egypt before, and he was a prince. So he had an excellent education in this kind of stuff. That's where Ramchal be coming from. Uh, knew that when you address this type of crowd, you speak in this way, and you address that kind of crowd, you speak in a different way. You know, that I find to be just interesting. The other item, so, you know, this is reading the Tanakh through the rhetorical lenses. <clears throat> uh, anyway, as I said before, if you're at all interested in the subject, I do recommend the, I don't get any money out of this, the, you get that um, Feldheim edition of the Ramchal stuff. It's like a fat book, you know, it's a thousand pages only that, because it's got the Sefer Melitz, it's got the Sefer Hegoyon, which is something completely different. It's got that Derek Tunas, which is that very Baruch and complicated um, Lumbus thing, you know. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, he, he just had a very Baroque mindset. There's no question about it. You know, it's, it's never simplistic. It's always highly... Um, I don't know, elaborated, I guess you'd say, you know, with all kinds of different parts. Um, I'm not that way. But obviously I'm not that way. <clears throat> the other thing I want to mention that I was reminded of, or I was thinking of the other day, this morning, was the following. You notice, you see it particularly, of course, in Bo, all the way through, Shemot Zerubah And that is this very interesting business where Hashem is always telling Moshe, show covet Lamalchus, show respect for Pharaoh. Okay? Uh, why? Why do you have to show respect for Pharaoh? To tell you the truth, the whole encounter with Pharaoh is a very embarrassing one for Pharaoh. Here he promises every two minutes I'm not giving in, but by the time it's all over, as I said before, Pharaoh in pajamas in the middle of the night, he's got to come. Remember, he said, oh, I'll never see you again. If I see you, keep Yom Rosi Panecha, Tomus, Oh, if I ever see you again, you will perish. Then he had to eat his words. I mean, Mamash had to eat his words. Because, and they say to Moshe, get out of here, and so on and so forth. You understand? And it's not that Pyro was persuaded. He was overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed. The, the, the proof, I mean, you don't need a proof, but the proof is in this week's Parsha. As soon as the minute he no longer feels overwhelmed directly, 
he goes back to square one. Even though it was stupid beyond belief. Because if Moshe Rabbeinu could pull off ten plagues, he could make an eleventh and wipe out you and your army. You know, which is what happened. But uh, that's a, you know, that's a separate choice. I'm sure I must have talked about that in the past. Parsha Bishalach is a wonderful story from psychological perspective. But what's this business that Moshe keeps telling him I want you to show respect to Paro? <clears throat> Why don't you just bust him? Uh, make him look like an idiot. After all, if Moshe wanted to, I mean Moshe to, he could do it like in the movies. You know, slap him in the face. What are you going to do about it? You know, punch him in the stomach. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? They couldn't touch Moshe, you see? But he didn't do that, okay? Even when Moshe loses his temper, he refrains from expressing himself directly. At least that's how the Chumash is written. Because he said, V'yardu kol avadecha One day you and your, not you, your servants will come and basically kiss my feet, you know, to put it in polite language. And, uh, but of course he meant power himself. But he wanted to speak in Lashon Kavad. Why the Lashon Kavad? That's very interesting. I mean, is God a monarchist? Is that what we're saying over here? That God is in favor, in principle, in the institution of monarchy? There are those who make that claim, you know. There are those who dispute that claim. That's like the Abarbanel versus the others, you know, what's a better government, a, better, a republic, a monarchy. But is that what's going on over here? It's all simplistic. It just occurred to me that um, Hashem wants Egypt to remain a viable country because for Jews, especially at that time, the worst of all situations is a total breakdown of law and order. If Paro would, would totally lose his authority, which Moshe could have pulled off in a second, then what taka would have happened? The country would have disintegrated into chaos. Every guy for himself called to Olim Gvar. All the bad Egyptians, you know, the criminals, everybody would rise to the top. And then, that's worse for, for the Jews. Because somewhere, somebody's going to start killing them. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? History has shown us that the worst situation is um, when there's a complete breakdown of the law and order. Now, you might tie in a Hitler. Hitler's the exception. Even with Hitler, I could make an argument, but I don't just feel right now like not in the mood to pursue it. You can make the argument. But, now near Hitler. But besides that, whenever there was a, a regime, a government, there's some kind of, you know, check and restraint on immediate and, and, and just mob violence to which a minority like the Jews were always exposed. And especially if they were hated, like I said before, for real estate reasons and other things like that, at the local level, it soon would start if, if Moshe from Dom day on would shame Pharaoh and show him up to be helpless and all the rest of it, which he was, uh, then in different places in Egypt, they just take the law in their own hands. You understand? Now you'll tell me like this, Hashem can protect anybody. That is true, but then it becomes much more difficult. It's easy for a bonus shalom, based on the principle of the economy of miracles, like the Rambam always says. You know, you do you do the least you, you have to do. Um... But based on the economy of, of miracles, if you keep power in, then there's still government, there's governors, there's police, there's law and order, and you wait for instructions from the top. You get it? You wait for instructions from the top. And therefore, even when the Jews killed the lamb and, and, and painted on the doors, there was enough law and order that the Egyptians didn't just spaz out. Now imagine if you lived in some Arab neighborhood today, for example, he just did something they consider insulting. 
They don't wait for no orders. They just come and tear and rip and kill everybody. You understand? That's how it goes. Or if you did something that was racially offensive, basically live in Harlem or something like that. Nobody's waiting for nothing. It's just going to blow up right away. It was necessary for God's purposes to have a disciplined society so he could carry out the whole program with the ten plagues and eventually get the government itself to legitimize it. He said, uh, that's what I'm thinking as it goes through, um, which I think is just very interesting. Now, if I wanted to be um, not that thoughtful in that way, but just more, um, I don't know, what's the right word? More yeshivish, perhaps. Uh, then you could say, Hashem wanted power to be head of Egypt so he could lead him this week into the Yamsuf. It's a good word also, but, you know, it's more for Dvar Torah. It seems to me in larger picture that you see the famous line, which is, have because otherwise, when the chaos breaks out, then the Jews really were in trouble. If they were scattered all over the country, which they were, by Timolars or some, so maybe the ones in, in, in Goshen would be okay, it's all Jewish neighborhood, but the ones that live out in Mitzrayim, they'd be toast so fast, you know, it, it, it would be a massacre uh, city. At least that's what I think. But anyway, I've gone long enough. With that, once again, I want to thank the Classical and family for sponsoring today's, and uh, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.